millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To get Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 281, Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint, with Peter Saris. Ah, Justinian, my old friend. Yes, a new book has come out about that most famous of Byzantines. The book is by Peter Saris, and it is excellent. It's not a dramatization of his career, but a brilliantly researched account of his life and time in office. Justinian is the only emperor where we can go granular, as uh, I discussed with Professor Caldellis in some of our recent episodes. We can actually track his words in real time, so to speak, as the Nika riots happen or the bubonic plague hits. We just have so many more sources for that period than any other in part because of Justinian's relentless legislation. Let's hear more about the great man from Professor Saris himself. And if you prefer to listen to books then uh, rather than read them, then uh, this one is available on Audible. To listen to it for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium, and I can give you more details after the interview. Professor Peter Saris, welcome to the History of Byzantium podcast. Hi, thank you for the uh, the invitation to speak to you. It's a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed reading the book. It's been many years since I uh, covered Justinian on the podcast, so it was really nice to revisit that era. And the listeners know him very well. He is, of course, the uh, the most famous Byzantine figure. I don't think there's too much argument about that. And um, uh, so I, I don't need to ask you why did you <laughs> find Justinian interesting, but why don't you tell the listeners about his place in your academic career and why you decided to write this book now. Well, Justinian has been uh, something of a preoccupation of mine, really, since I was an undergraduate uh, back in Oxford in the early 1990s. Uh, and I was first set a, I was studying a general paper on early medieval Europe. And my old tutor, Patrick Wormold, gave me an essay on Justinian, asking the classic question we really get from Edward Gibbon, uh, did Justinian ruin the empire he set out to restore? And uh, and I found Justinian from that moment on a fascinating figure because in so many ways, his reign seemed to confound the narrative of decline 
that was still very embedded in the way that many historians tended to approach uh, the early Middle Ages uh, in the, uh, in, even in the 1990s. Uh, and so I got, by virtue of that, really increasingly interested in Justinian, and I began to study him more closely, first of all, uh, with James Howard Johnston from a primarily military perspective, looking at Byzantine relations with Persia, and also, of course, the great impact of his Western uh, campaigns. Then as a graduate student, it occurred to me that whilst one could ascertain a, a fair amount of Justinian's attempted overhauling of the Roman state, we had difficulty really contextualizing that and putting that reform program in its social and economic context. So uh, as a graduate student and a young academic, that was my main focus, drawing on the documentary papyri from Egypt and the archeology span and numismatic evidence from elsewhere to try to contextualize the regime. Then more recently, I got more interested in Justinian from a more full-blown legal perspective. And then uh, through some of my doctoral students, really from a more doctrinal perspective. So over the course of the period since the 1990s, I've been approaching Justinian from a whole series of directions. And it occurred to me that with the 1500th anniversary uh, of his accession to the throne coming up, uh, it was a good moment for a stock take to step back and think what I, and reconsider what I thought of his reign uh, as a whole. And in a sense, circumstances then pushed me further in that direction in that due to COVID, I had to find myself a lockdown project, uh, which I could write with the libraries closed and inaccessible. And so I sat down and, and cracked on uh, with the Justinian book. Well, at least that led to one good thing. Uh, <laughs> um, so, well, that's interesting. And your answer has kind of led naturally to my next question, because um, particularly the further on you go into Byzantine history, it's very hard to reconstruct the personalities of Empress, whereas Justinian, we have this rare glimpse, this insight into what he might have been like because of the sheer amount of um, evidence we have, and you, you covered some of it there. Um, from everything you've read, can you tell the listeners how you see his personality and, and maybe lead into what the, the strengths and weaknesses of that personality was when it came to being emperor? Yes, I think Justinian is one of the few individuals uh, for whom we can really trace the outline of his personality uh, and capture some of his voice from, from late antiquity. Uh, the other obvious ones would be Julian the Apostate, whose reign is much shorter, uh, and from a religious perspective, say, uh, uh, from the Latin West, St. Augustine. But for Justinian's reign, we have um, such a mass of material, both material expressed in the uh, emperor's voice uh, propagandizing on behalf of his regime and setting out his policy agenda. We have this with respect to internal reforms, doctrinal matters, uh, military affairs. We also have, of course, a, a huge amount of contemporary literature responding to him as well. I mean, we sometimes think as uh, scholars of Byzantium that compared to historians working on the high Roman Empire, that we suffer from a paucity of material. This is not the case with respect to Justinian. We have uh, more, uh, more evidence for Justinian and his reign than we do for almost any previous Roman emperor. And I think if we take uh, the legal sources, the doctrinal sources, the literary sources together, quite a clear picture of the man emerges. He is, as uh, the sixth century historian Procopius emphasizes, in many ways reflecting back imperial propaganda, a workaholic. Uh, he is obsessed with the minutiae of government, showing an interest in the fine grain of imperial administration, even on the, the empire's distant frontiers in Egypt and elsewhere. He uh, uh, is 
aware that for the imperial system to operate, he has to delegate power, but he has great difficulty letting go. Uh, and there are only a, a very small number of individuals he's really willing to trust in that process of delegation. He is fantastically loyal, as we see in his devotion to his wife, the Empress Theodora, whom he treats really as a co-ruler. Uh, he has enormous reserves of energy. He is impatient of failure. He doesn't understand others who do not share his vision of a purified, more Christianized uh, Roman Empire. And he has, I think, an ability to exhaust even those who share uh, the emperor's own enthusiasm for his project. And, and these aspects of his personality uh, uh, come across very strongly from our sources. I think like a lot of uh, ideological visionaries and like a lot of uh, workaholic administrators, one problem with Justinian, and it's an, a problem which is emphasized, for example, in the early legislation of his successor, Justin II, who reverses some of Justinian's measures, is that Justinian doesn't really understand human frailty, doesn't really understand human weakness, and often demands too much of both his subjects and his own courtiers. Uh, and we see this very clearly, for example, in the very high uh, moral standards, uh, which from his very aggressively Christianizing perspective, we see him trying to apply to his subjects. So, for example, Justin II's critique of Justinian's demands is made in the context of his reversing of Justinian's attempt to effectively make it illegal for Romans to divorce by mutual consent. He has a very Christianizing view of marriage, uh, uh, tied up with a broader moral agenda, which I think we can see driving a lot of his um, domestic uh, political program. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So it? Some emperors might think if a you know, long-serving official had only embezzled a little and had one affair, <laughs> that would be a good <laughs> result. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, this that sort of leads into um, uh, the Nika riots in, in my mind, which um, when I first covered, you know, I, I hadn't sort of got the whole sweep of Byzantine history under my belt yet. So I thought, well, this is what rulers do. You know, they, they might have to turn on their own subjects and um, in order to keep power. But having studied many centuries of sort of Constantinople's um, usurpers and rebellions, it just struck, stood out to me ever more that no other emperor had done what Justinian did. Now, of course, maybe if they'd had troops on hand, they would have. But uh, do you feel he he deserves extra criticism for, for making that choice? Or do you think, well, that's just power politics? I think at the end of the day, the, the Nica, Justinian's response to the Nike riots was informed by a decision he had to make as to whether, uh, as the historian Procopius presents it, he, whether he was to hold on to the throne or not. Uh, and I think given the objective political circumstances uh, which presented him uh, during that struggle for power that ensued uh, across the course of that bloodthirsty week in 532, uh, all, well, any emperor who wanted to hold on to power would have had to do essentially the same thing. I think Justinian is responding here to, in the context of the Nicaragua, to a series of objective circumstances which were partly the result of an inheritance from the reign of his predecessors and partly the specific circumstances through which he had helped to engineer his own rise to power. 
uh, as my, my, my friend and colleague Geoffrey Greatrex has emphasized, in the early 6th century, the circus factions of Constantinople, these, these sporting associations, which also become important points of contact and affinity between upper class and lower class youths in the cities, in the cities of the empire, were increasingly drawn into both the doctrinal and more general uh, imperial politics of the, of the day. And we see this already very clearly in the reign of the Emperor uh, Anastasius, particularly in terms of the doctrinal politics of the day. Now, as a young man at the court of his uncle the, and adopted father, the Emperor Justin I, Justinian had had to engage in a concerted programme of machination in order to build up his own support base in the city and to secure his own claim to the throne. It's by no means the case that uh, upon the accession of Justin I in 518, that Justinian was already regarded as the heir apparent. He has to really work uh, on the political circles in Constantinople to achieve that. And we see him reaching out to elements in the church, through church building, uh, reaching out to elements in the army to build up a support base there, but also crucially building up a support base on the streets of Constantinople by associating himself with the blue faction. So the circus factions have played an important part in his political rise to power. Now, when he comes to power as sole emperor in 527, it's necessary really politically for him to disengage then from the circus factions and to try to put them back in the box, as it were. Otherwise, his association with the blues will be regarded as too uh, destabilizing. So that already starts to lead to, I think that's the, the context of the rising grievances against him uh, by the, the circus factions. They don't really understand why it is that having been so important to Justinian earlier, he now is trying to disengage from them. And what will then happen in the context of the riots is that the growing uh, alienation of the mob and the alienation of the circus factions will, of course, be taken advantage of by some of uh, Justinian's senatorial opponents in the highest political circles in Constantinople, who will try to redirect the rioting into a full-blown attempted coup. And once it's quite clear to those within the palace, loyal to Justinian, that the riots are now a full-blown attempt at regime change. Justinian, at that point, has the choice either of fleeing and, uh, and losing control of the empire, because once he's outside the capital, once he's outside the palace, that's the regime finished, or of, as it were, throwing caution to the wind and taking battle to his opponent by unleashing Belisarius and his other allies onto the streets and, uh, and engaging in the mass bloodshed, which will then secure Justinian's place on the throne. So it's a combination of, of general political tendencies and then the specific circumstances that have led Justinian to power and the way in which these circus factions can be bought up and used by different political factions in Constantinople, both pro-Justinian and anti-Justinian. One of the things I really, really enjoyed about the book was the way you saw his legislation uh, ch sort of changing things in real time. And, you know, obviously I want to know, did he feel guilty about what happened and, and that sort of thing? And whether you can say that or not, but you, you did detect a change in his, the way he was conceiving of what had happened through the way he was writing laws. Is that right? I, well, I think both in terms of the legislation, but also we see it in terms of pro-regime uh, literature that's being produced and circulated on the streets of Constantinople, such as the hymns of uh, Romanos, the Melo, for example, who is a contemporary hymn writer whose hymns are performed on the streets of the capital and which are used then to convey political messages. Justinian's own propaganda 
uh, and his initial take on the Nike riots is to interpret them as what they clearly were, I think, in the, uh, at the end of the day, an attempted coup orchestrated by his opponents within the Senate and within political circles, Constantinople. But then as the 530s proceeds, he starts to interpret the riots more as a sort of form of divine punishment for human sinfulness and for the sinfulness of his son subject, which informs a broader determination, which has already been informing his legislation from the moment he comes to the throne, to, as it were, try to purify and more fully Christianize the Roman state from a hardline Christian perspective. Uh, I, I would agree with other historians here that I think that Justinian's thinking is informed by a determination to seek to regain divine favor, aware that hopes of imperial restoration to the West or success against Persia uh, require the favor of God, which can only be achieved through uh, taking moral reform and religious reform at home more seriously. It may also be informed by the deep-rooted apocalyptic sensibilities, which we can see in some Christian circles uh, in the early sixth century, and which may well have informed Justinian's own thought, the belief that mankind is on the verge of divine judgment, and so the emperor must prepare himself and his subjects for judgment. In terms of guilt, I think that Justinian is like many other um, uh, um, uh, ideologically or religiously driven autocrats across history, that he regards almost any amount of bloodshed as justifiable if it serves the purposes of his higher moral or imperial vision. Mm. Uh, this is exactly how the critique of someone like Procopius and other contemporary critics of the regime, but also I think that matches the, the ruthlessness of the emperor as we see uh, in the context of Nike riots, as we see in the context of uh, the Western reconquests, as we see in his clear belief that unleashing uh, military manpower to restore uh, Roman uh, might is a fundamentally uh, moral concern and a, a fundamentally moral objective, which thereby is justified, justifies an enormous amount of slaughter. So the ends will justify the means. For him, certainly, yes. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, let's move on to the other big um, uh, sort of famous dark incident of his reign, the bubonic plague. And um, you talked about his response to that big challenge in the book in a way I hadn't fully taken in at the time. Um, can you tell the listeners a bit about his response and whether you think he did a, a good job? Yes, again, the Justinianic plague is a very long-standing uh, interest of mine. Uh, I, I, the first seminar paper I gave as a graduate student was on it uh, back in uh, 1994, in fact, and I've been working on the topic periodically ever since. Uh, I think that there's been a, um, an unfortunate tendency in recent years on the part of some scholars to downplay the significance of the Justinianic plague and to downplay uh, the potential consequences of the plague. Uh, I don't think those approaches are fully rooted in understanding of the science, and I don't think they're rooted in a full appreciation of the, of the extraordinary body of material we have pertaining uh, to the plague. I think what is, we, we have no reason but to, uh, to uh, concur with our contemporary eyewitness accounts that the bubonic plague which strikes the empire the, uh, for the first time in the 540s struck the Mediterranean world as a hammer blow and potentially really posed the risk of knocking the entire imperial project 
off kilter. It would, of course, lead to a dramatic reduction in the number of taxpayers on whom the empire and the emperor could depend. It would start posing mounting problems to military recruitment. It would also intensify the apocalyptic apprehensions and fears that hovered at the background uh, of the thought processes of both the emperor and many of his subjects. However, uh, as you say in the book, what I tried to bring out was the remarkably focused and effective nature of certain of the policy responses which Justinian and his circle were able to develop in the face of this unprecedented cataclysm. Uh, and I think that the way in which we see uh, the imperial authorities, first of all, focusing on uh, trying to control and uh, uh, the, uh, epidem uh, the medical consequences of mass mortality in Constantinople, getting rid of bodies and so on, is very impressive. But more impressive still were the fiscal measures taken to try to uh, once again regain fiscal composure on the Roman state as tax revenues started to dry up, uh, introducing price and wage controls, uh, uh, manipulating the currency to try to stretch limited reserves ever further. And I think what we can see if we turn to the legal evidence and the numismatic evidence is that even at the worst initial impact of the Justinianic plague, the imperial authorities were able to effectively pre prevent a collapse of the imperial system and ensure that in, instead what they're faced with was a, uh, a cataclysm, as it were. But, but they managed to keep the state holding together. And I think it's only once we get into the late 540s and into the 550s that the cumulative effects of the plague start to become increasingly debilitating. But I think what is most striking is, as it were, the, uh, the way in which Justinian and his administrators able to, are able to keep the ship of the Roman state on course despite this. It's really testament to the, to the statesmanship and, and statecraft of the 6th century Byzantine imperial system and those around Justinian. This is quite a, a big open-ended question, but um, as a legislator in general, do you see him as an impressive figure or does he does his lack of realism come through in, in what he thought he could achieve by by changing the law? Well, I think there are two very important aspects here. First of all, Justinian, I think Justinian's two main interests, the two most consistent interests of the emperor across his reign were law and legal reform on the one hand, theology and doctrine on the other. Uh, and he, when he comes to power, we have an explosion of legal um, creativity and activism on the part of the emperor, reforming fundamental aspects of administration and life uh, in the Roman world, in the early Byzantine world. But that is happening alongside, of course, also the codification project, whereby Justinian is taking the inherited uh, texts and body of Roman law and recasting it and boiling it down and condensing it to serve contemporary needs and to uh, convey one unified vision and voice that of Justinian himself. Now, in terms of the, the ad hoc piecemeal reforms, the overhauling of the provinces and so on, one could argue that you know, a number of those reforms will end up being reversed, that as circumstances changed across the course of his reign, not all of the legal remedies uh, that he introduced to affect uh, things like problems of tax collection and so on, that not, all, not all of those would deliver. Uh, but on the other hand, the codification project uh, which many contemporaries, Justinian's court tells us, regarded as impossible 
to achieve. The boiling down of the inherited Roman juridical texts uh, by 95%, the recasting of all the legal materials inherited from previous emperors, the creation of a new textbook for the law in the form of the Institutes. Not only would that uh, codification program be successful, but it would define how Roman law would be transmitted in Byzantium and beyond in the medieval West, uh, really until the age of Napoleon. So in terms of the most ambitious part of his reform program legally, the codification project, the success was really quite remarkable and plays a fundamental role in the contribution that Justinian made to the future development of Western civilization. Mm. Yeah, well, I'll give you a chance to kind of give your final verdict on Justinian at the end of this interview. Let me put two things to you, which I, I suspect you will see very differently than I did at the time. There were two things sort of towards the end of his reign that gave me a slightly negative view of Justinian in my in my very amateur level of research. One was the decision to send troops to Spain when things already seemed very stretched in, in Italy and, and in the Balkans, where there seemed to be sort of Slavic groups and, and perhaps what we would call Bulgarian groups or you know, nomads sort of raiding the Balkans. And so I just thought this was very odd because it seemed to me, even if your Spain expedition succeeds, you, you won't be able to keep control of it if you're struggling to keep control of Italy and the Balkans. Um, is that a fair criticism or am I looking at it through the wrong lens? Well, I think that the uh, the Spanish adventure, the sending of forces to establish a new imperial foothold in southern Spain that we see in the 550s, this, this, I don't think what this is, is an attempt to uh, uh, reconquer the entirety of the Visigothic kingdom of Spain. I think, with, as with quite a lot of Justinian's Western uh, forays, it's an opportunistic campaign taking advantage advantage of a succession dispute uh, in the Visigothic kingdom in the same way he's taken advantage of succession disputes in the Vandal kingdom of Africa and the Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy uh, to initially restore imperial control over the core coast, the most important coastal zones of the Mediterranean, uh, which helped to secure the empire's control of the Mediterranean sea routes. He's restoring imperial control over what is economically still the most economically developed and sophisticated part of the Visigothic kingdom of Spain. So on the basis of relatively little military outlay, he is acquiring territories which could make a net contribution to imperial tax revenues. But also I think those Spanish territories where we see the military focus being directed by Justinian in the 550s were really of interest to him in terms of consolidating control over Africa and preventing uh, any Visigothic forces or any forces from the West from crossing the Straits of Gibraltar and beginning to challenge Roman authority there. So in, in certain respects, it's, it's the final consolidation of the imperial position that's been restored in Africa. And I think it's a necessary follow on from that. Whilst also I think putting, uh, showing a, a, an opportunistic interest in putting feelers out to seeing how far along the coastal zone and how far into the hinterland uh, imperial power can be restored at relatively little outlay. So I don't think it's a major uh, uh, means of uh, sap on imperial resources at that moment in time. Right. Well, the other um, criticism I, I strongly suspect you'll disagree with um, was the succession that I felt shouldn't he put someone in place who largely agrees with his policy programs so that he has confidence it will continue on after his death. Um, what do you think of that? 
Well, I think that uh, as with his uh, uncle Justin the First, Justinian, having spent most of his career, uh, almost his almost his entire life in and around the palace, has a very keen understanding of how the power dynamics and the power politics of life in the palace of Constantinople really work. Now, if we go back and, and think about his uncle Justin the First for a moment. As I said earlier, it was by no means clear when Justin I became emperor in 518 that Justinian was going to be his successor. Uh, and Justin I himself appears to have taken quite a long time before he decides to line Justinian up. He only makes him Caesar, a uh, deputy in 525, so seven years after he's come to power, and he only makes him co-emperor uh, when illness obliges him to do that just a few months before his death. Why would that be the case? Well, if you're an elderly emperor in particular, like Justin I was, you don't want there to be an obvious successor because then you start looking extremely expendable. Fewer people will defer to you, fewer people will listen to you. Ultimately, uh, those around your successor uh, may, may want to do away with you. And likewise, whilst on the one hand, Justinian, I think, understood that it was useful for him to surround himself with members of his broader extended kin, so, for example, we see a lot of uh, his uh, nephews and cousins being adopt, uh, put into high-ranking military positions. By virtue of the fact that there are always anti-Justinianic factions at court, by virtue of the fact that there are always people machinating and plotting against him, the emperor was much safer not to have a successor lined up for the same reasons I mentioned with respect to Justin I, because at that point, Justinian would have become much more vulnerable. You have a single figure around whom hopes of regime change can coalesce. Now, again, his successor, Justin II, will, through his court propagandists, want to give the impression that Justinian favoured him as his successor and anointed him as such, or, well, well, and signalled that, that he would be such prior to his death. But we've not got no real evidence for that. If anything, his cousin, also called Justin, would have been a, 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 a stronger uh, claimant, but I, I think this is all part of how, if you are particularly an elderly emperor in Constantinople, you secure your position on the throne by making sure there's no one person whom people can rally behind. Very, very interesting. Um, before we get to to uh, your final verdict, uh, let's just have a very brief word on modern comparisons. Um, I know one scholar compared Justinian to Stalin. Um, which has sort of um, uh, led to some discussion. Do, do you see any modern comparisons as helpful? Even, you know, uh, that the, we're not asking that modern figures would actually be like Justinian, but I, I, I know in one interview, someone asked you whether he was like Margaret Thatcher, which really amused me. But um, yeah, I, are there I any... Certain anatomy to autocracy, which one can study uh, across time comparing different historical societies and different political cultures in a way that is useful. Mm. Uh, Tony Honore, who compared uh, Justinian to Stalin, and what he was getting at there was Justinian, as I say, Justinian's obsession with detail, uh, his obsession with the minutiae of government, uh, the difficulty he had letting go. And I think actually that, that comparison uh, is quite useful. And, and in many ways, there are useful points of comparison between literary culture say in Stalinist Moscow and literary culture in sixth century Constantinople, whereas I try to draw out in the book, it's actually possible to get, to get away with much more public criticism of the regime than we might sometimes think. Uh, and that comparison with, 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 with Moscow under Stalin was one I remember um, Cyril Mando making uh, to me when I was uh, uh, a student. Uh, 
again, I think that, well, when I was writing the final section of the book, uh, I was really writing it at the same time as the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And of course, the ideological legacy of Byzantium in the Russian world is immense. And there is a great interest uh, in Byzantium, the part of some modern nationalist uh, elements in Russian politics. But it was, it was very hard not to be reading about Justinian's armies liberating people that didn't really necessarily want to be liberated or view the invasion of their territory as liberation uh, and not be thinking to some extent about what was, what was also going on in Ukraine at the time. So I do think uh, these these points of historical comparison can be useful, but not least because as it were, Justinian also plays a vital part in, I think, establishing the agenda of autocracy and uh, of Christian autocracy in particular, not only in the Byzantium of his own lifetime, but also in the Western tradition moving forward. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, getting to sort of summing Justinian up then, I, I think you you argued quite nicely in the book, you know, that instead of applying modern criteria for whether he was a good emperor, we should look at whether he lived up to his own goals and ambitions. And, and I think you think largely he did. Yes, I, th I think talk of good or bad emperors can be uh, can be uh, uh, sort of dangerous and unhelpful. Um, I think that one of the key aspects with Justinian, which I try to bring out in the book, is to emphasize uh, both the, 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 what I term the light and the shade of his regime and of his agenda. So as, uh, the, on the one hand, for example, the emperor's Christianizing agenda would lead to a dramatic intensification of persecution of uh, uh, religious minorities, non-conformist groups within the empire, of pagans, of Jews, of Samaritans, of Christians he deemed heretical. We see unprecedented persecution of people on grounds of uh, sexual morality and lifestyles uh, under Justinian. At the same time, the same Christianizing agenda also informed an unprecedented degree of charity on the part of the regime towards groups such as uh, the urban poor, vulnerable women, women who want to escape lives as prostitutes, ex-slaves, and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, I think we have to look at the impact of Justinian's policy on his subjects in the round. And what you thought of the regime at the time would probably been informed by which end of Justinian's policy agenda you were at the receiving end of. Uh, and then in terms of the success of the regime, which I think is, is a more useful way to think about it rather than whether he was, he was good or bad, how successful was he? But I think there's been a tendency on the part of historians to overemphasize the relatively short-lived nature of Justinian's Western reconquest in terms of making sense of his legacy. That the, the territories that are reconquered in Africa, Italy, part of Spain, would not stay under uh, imperial control for many generations, uh, for the most part, after his death. And of course, the empire as a whole would suffer a major era of military collapse in the seventh century at the hands of both the Persians uh, and the Arabs. So I think as it were, the, particularly by virtue of the, the loss of these Western territories, people often regard Justinian as in some sense a political failure. But as I, uh, as came across to me really, as I try to look at his reign in the round, those Western reconquests are really for the most part opportunistic military forays, often on the cheap. The outlay of resources in those Western campaigns is very limited. Justinian's most consistent priorities and the priorities which he's most determined to bring to the fore of imperial policy when he comes to the throne in 527 
were law and legal reform, including the codification of the inherited body of the Roman law, and doctrinal matters, trying to redefine and, uh, and resolve the doctrinal disputes at the heart of the church politics of the day in the sixth century. Once again, uh, 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 solving those doctrinal disputes were, to Justinian's mind, of fundamental significance in terms of securing divine favor for the empire and salvation for himself and his subjects. And I think in terms of law and doctrine, Justinian's uh, legacy was one of much greater success. As I mentioned earlier, at the end of the day, the way in which Roman law would be transmitted uh, 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 both within Byzantium and beyond, the way in which Roman law would be transmitted uh, in the centuries ahead is as it leaves the hands of his law commissioners. Roman law's students study today is really Justinianic Roman law. And so he would really establish the legal bedrock upon which uh, Western Christendom and medieval Byzantium would be built. And likewise, the doctrine of the Byzantine church and the doctrine of the early medieval papacy that we see uh, represented, for example, in the writings of the greatest of the early medieval popes, Pope Gregory the Great, at the end of the sixth century, is Christian doctrine as it left uh, the hands of Justinian's court theologians and as Justinian enforced it on the imperial church at the great council, the second council of Constantinople, uh, which he convened in the year 553. So in terms of what mattered most to Justinian, in his own terms, law and doctrine, his legacy would be immense and his reign would be, from the Empress perspective, one of enormous success and delivery. Brilliant. Uh, Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint is available wherever good books are sold. And this is a very, very good book. And, <laughs> and, uh, I, and you can now listen to it uh, on Audible, uh, which is exciting for, for those of you who like to get all your content uh through your ears uh professor saris thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks for having me thank you audible is an incredible service offering you hundreds of thousands of books podcasts and radio programs for your monthly subscription it's like having a second podcast app on your phone full of content you can't get anywhere else if you'd like to sign up for a month's trial of Audible service, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. You'll get a free book when you sign up, and you can keep that forever, even if you don't continue to subscribe. Justinian, Emperor Soldier Saint, is on there, as are Tom Holland's books, Catherine Pangonis's, Peter Frankopan's, and literally thousands and thousands of others. Check them all out at audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.